Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon. What happens here is Callum has written me a script, which normally I have printed out, but I ran out of printer paper and I didn't want to go to the store to get any. So today, I'm being very good, being good for the environment. I've got it on my iPad, which uh, it feels really different for some reason. Anyway, uh, Callum, of course, wrote the script for me. Thanks, Callum. Oh, the problem with the iPad is it will interrupt me with notifications. Please stop. Let's just... Uh, Put that on airplane mode. Will I still be able to access this script? Yes. Good. Let's do that. Um, this is... Uh, Callum's written it. I will read it. Jen afterwards will edit it. And this is what happens on this show. Today is a shorter episode. It's uh, the Kobe Cannibal Issei Sagawa. I looked up the name pronunciation beforehand um, because... Well, that's the kind of good, thoughtful host that I am. But there are going to be Japanese pronunciations, and I'm probably going to screw them up. It is what it is. Let's jump into it. Everyone deserves a second chance. I'd like to think this old cliche generally holds true when it comes to crime and punishment. One moment of madness doesn't have to define a person's entire existence. I mean, it does kind of. If that moment of madness is murder and you end up in prison forever, then it has kind of defined your entire existence. If you agree with me on that, then brace yourself. The subject of today's episode may really test your faith in redemption. The killer's grotesque perversions and sick crimes will shock you, but it's what came after that's truly insane. Not only did Japanese society give him a second chance, they gave him a free pass. A free pass to milk his infamy for all it was worth and create a horribly unsettling pop culture legacy, boasting about his cannibalistic crime without shame or repentance. I feel like isn't one of the things like when you go up for parole or whatever they're like you should have repented for your crimes like admitted them been like i was a bad person i've seen the error of my ways now i get to go on parole get granted parole and then it's like if you're all like nah i wasn't really redemptive or whatever the word is what's the past tense of redemption <laughs> i don't know uh but then i'll be like well you weren't really redemptive so get back in prison all right anyway Get ready to jump down the rabbit hole into the psychology of a truly disturbed mind as we explore the story of Issei Sagawa, the Kobe criminal. The murder of Rene Hartevelt. On the 11th of June, 1981, Rene Hartevelt set off from her Paris apartment and took a cab towards the Rue Erlinger, just a little down from Le Tour Eiffel, also known as the Eiffel Tower. She was on her way to meet a classmate, a Japanese citizen, also pursuing his literature PhD at the Sorbonne. Since they met about two weeks earlier, the 25-year-old Dutch woman René had been teaching him German. It all started when he approached her after class and introduced himself as Issei, Issei Sagawa. He invited her over to his apartment to discuss poetry over dinner. Brene must have guessed that he had some ulterior motives, but at 32 years old and 4'9 in height, he wasn't exactly a romantic type. That is rather short. Um, yes, like, come over to my apartment, we'll have dinner and read poetry. <laughs> he has other things on his mind. She suspected that Sagawa might have had a thing for her, but she had no idea the kind of dark thoughts going through his head that night. The two shared some Japanese sukiyaki, perhaps, hot pot, but Sagawa was fantasizing about a very different meal throughout. He had singled Rene out not only because he wanted to sleep with her, 
He had the overwhelming urge to eat her. Oh my! A picture of health and beauty, he dreamed that he would absorb her energies by doing so. And that, everybody, is just good science. Not really, don't eat anybody. But best not lead with that. It doesn't make for a very good first date chat. Come over to my apartment. We'll, we'll have dinner. We'll read poetry. I'll eat your insides. <laughs> You psycho is saying, what are you doing? Ah. Instead, Sagawa used his dad's sizable fortune so he'd have a reason to see her again. That's when he offered her cash to be his German tutor. Over the following weeks, they met up regularly for lessons and meals at his apartment. After a few visits, Sagawa finally worked up the confidence to make a move. No, he didn't bite the poor girl just yet. He made a pass at her. She told him she didn't see him in that way, and their relationship continued on platonically. Rene had no reason to suspect she was in danger from this smitten little guy when she arrived at his door on the 11th. Sagawa invited her in, and the two hit the book, studying for an upcoming poetry assignment. Wait, I thought he was, she was teaching him German. What's going on? If I were her, I'd be suspicious. Sagawa complimented Rene's German language recitations. Oh, German poetry. Okay, God, this is specific. And asked her to record some pieces into his tape machine for him to practice against. So she took a seat at the dining table and started recording into the mic. While Rene was engrossed in the reading, Sagawa came up behind her with a 22 caliber rifle and shot her in the back of the head. The bullet wasn't powerful enough to punch an exit wound and instead ricocheted off the inside of her skull. She died instantly. That escalated quickly. After realizing the gravity of what he had just done, my dude, you realize after it's like, I wonder if shooting someone in the head is going to be a serious situation. Guess what I say? It is. It always is. You should have been able to have the foresight to see that. Uh, Sagawa considered calling an ambulance in his own words. Then I thought, hang on, don't be stupid. You've been dreaming about this for 32 years, and now it's actually happening. The dream he's referring to is the cannibalistic fantasy which plagued his thoughts since childhood. His infatuation with Renee was just the latest manifestation. When he spotted her bearskin in class, the urge to lean over and bite dominated his thoughts. He spent the nights that followed in a state of sick infatuation, caught between the desire to be with Renee and the fantasy of eating her. For Sagawa, the two were usually one and the same. But this was the first time he ever made his sick urges a reality. First, he raped the body, then attempted to bite into the right buttock with his bare teeth. When he failed to break through the flesh, the fledgling cannibal grabbed a kitchen knife and started cutting the body open. Oh my god. Wait, did Callum say at the beginning that what happens afterwards is going to be worse? Because already this is well up there with the worst of the shit we've seen on the casual criminalist. Like, necrophilia followed by cannibalism is like, I, I mean, dude. He later recounted, No matter how deep I cut, all I saw was the fat beneath the skin. It looked like corn, and it took a while to actually reach the red meat. The moment I saw the meat, I tore a chunk off with my fingers and threw it into my mouth. It was truly a historical moment for me. Oh my. Over the next two days, Sagawa repeatedly raped and butchered the body while listening to the recordings of the dead woman's last minutes on his tape recorder. After the first bite, he moved down to the leg, to the feet, and then took pieces from pretty much every other part of the body to sample. Most of the pieces he ate raw, but he also tried frying a few pieces with seasoning. Others he put in the freezer for storage. Dude. He's given some extremely detailed play-by-play accounts over the years, but do any of you out there really want to hear a cannibal describe the systematic butchery of a woman and the specific tastes and textures of each piece? Absolutely not, in no way, Callum, and if you mention them, I'm just going to skip right over that if you answered yes, I sincerely hope we never meet. Yes, oh my gosh. If you're thinking yes, please never say hi to me. If you're like, oh look, it's the guy. Don't come up to me and say hello. Normally I like it, but uh, if 
if if you if you want to taste the flat no just no now i've seen and read some awful things while researching for this show i honestly thought nothing could shake me at this point today however i stumbled across a blog post featuring what i believe to be some of the autopsy pictures showing exactly what isai sagawa did to his victim jen do not show those images because one it's horrifically disturbing and two monetization would absolutely be switched off of this if we did so please please no <laughs> that tab was closed sharpish even i have my limits thank you for making the sacrifice callum i'm glad that i read all of this stuff through a filter review because if i was <laughs> reading and researching and writing this stuff myself i would be scarred for life thank you for taking the hit callum after Sagawa finished his two-day binge, he decided to dispose of the remains. With a hatchet, he cut up the remainder of Rene's body, wrapped the pieces in cloth, and stuffed them into a suitcase. He later recounted that when he held up her head by the hair, the reality finally set in. I realized I am a cannibal, he said. Dude, you that's when you realize you realize it too late. You're like a shot her in the head. Wow, this is surprisingly a, surprisingly a big deal. I ate her. Oh my god, I'm a cannibal. What is wrong with you? A dark obsession. This was a dream over three decades in the making. Sagawa had dreamed of eating people from a young age. Born prematurely to wealthy parents in the seaside city of Kobe in 1949, he was a sickly child with a severe inferiority complex. He described himself as having legs like pencils and seemed to severely resent his short stature and unfortunate looks. After learning about cannibalism from a fairy tale, he began to have dreams that signaled the start of his lifelong obsession. He dreamt of he and his younger brother being boiled alive in a pot to be eaten. When little Issei awoke, he started fantasizing about what it might be like to be a chef in the story rather than an ingredient. In the first grade of elementary school, these fantasies started spilling out in the real world. Sitting in class one summer's day, he recounts seeing the quivering meat on a male classmate's thighs, and I suddenly thought, mmm, that looks delicious, but I'm not homosexual. Nice thighs, bro. No homo. <laughs> my dude. Once he started puberty, Isai's cannibalistic urges became increasingly tangled with his sex drive. This reached new heights in junior high when he went with his family to see a film starring Grace Kelly. In her, he discovered his ideal match or meal. White women, blonde hair, blue eyes. In 1972, Sagawa was studying literature at Waka University in Tokyo. While there, he took classes in German, probably to help chat up all of those Aryan beauties that he was dreaming of. Up until now, he'd kept his unorthodox preferences under wraps, but living on his own for the first time, the urges cared to manifest. He'd kept his preferences under wraps. <laughs> yes, my idea, dude. No one in my life has come up to me and been like, you know what I'm really into? Eating people. Because if you are into eating people, you have probably learned to shut the f*** up. Also, I hope I... I've never met anyone who's into eating people. Maybe it's also statistically quite unlikely. I hope so. One day that summer, he spotted a tall German woman walking down the street and decided it was time to strike. He followed the woman to her apartment, waited a while, then slipped in through her window. He found her lying asleep. So how in the hell did he plan to do that exactly? Well, the littlest cannibal had no idea what to do next. He hadn't really planned this far in advance. Sagawa scanned around the room to find a weapon, anything that might be good for a bit of slicing and dicing, and eventually he settled on an umbrella. He's <laughs> wondering if there's something wrong with you, my dude. I mean, there's definitely something wrong with you, because you're a cannibal, but also, like, is there something, like, not quite right? upstairs before he could grab his weapon of choice the woman woke up and screamed she pushed him to the ground and he ran off out of the apartment the police eventually managed to track him down and hit him with an attempted rape charge he never let on that he planned to do far more than that <laughs> yeah of course he did the police arrested him it's like we're charging you with rape or attempted rape and he's like oh 
Oh, thank God, because I was absolutely going to murder and eat her, said no one ever. Sagawa claims that his only intention was to cut off some pieces of the woman and sneak off without disturbing her. How exactly do you plan on that, mate? Surely he's not stupid enough to think that this was possible. Whether he intended to kill the woman or just snatch an innocent little snack, he was lucky to only land an attempted rape charge. And even more lucky to dodge any prison time for this incident. That's because consequences are for poor people. The cannibal's big businessman father managed to pay off the victim, promising to send his son to therapy as part of the deal. The therapist was the first to ever see Sagawa voice his sick desires out loud and sought to have him categorized as a high-risk individual. But once again, Sagawa Sr. swooped in. Rather than endure the shame of his son being outed as a cannibal, he engineered his exile to France, where he could continue his studies. Yes, make it France's problem. What are you up to? A country filled with his ideal victim. At 28 years old, Issei Sagawa set off for Paris with a clean slate and a second chance at eating human flesh. His close call with justice might have dulled his urges for a while. Wait, did he have a criminal record? Because he's like attempted rape. He avoided prison, but France was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You just got off an attempted rape. You got just got a, an attempted rape charge. Welcome to France. His close call with justice might have dulled his urges for a while, but soon enough, Sagawa was back at it. In Paris, he made a habit of bringing prostitutes back to his apartments. Wielding the same small-caliber rifle with which he later called René, he aimed at the back of their heads but was never able to fire. Rather than morals and whatnot, it was instinct that stopped my hand from moving. Somewhere in my mind, I knew that I and the world I lived in would shatter to pieces the moment I pulled that trigger. It would be years before he could bring himself to follow through with it. When he began taking perjury classes in the summer of 1981, he found the perfect victim. René was tall, blonde, blue-eyed. The little cannibal was instantly infatuated. Not only was she physically perfect, but unlike the French women he had grown accustomed to, she was willing to show him the time of day. He maintains to this day that his friendship with Renee was genuine and that killing her wasn't necessarily part of the plan. In fact, he even claims that a glass of certain bodily fluids or a nibble on some pubic hair might have been enough to sate his desires, but he was too afraid to ask. He was worried she might be disgusted. Probably a good call. Yes, indeed, she would have been. When it became clear that the only way to consume his sweetheart was to end her life, he resolved to kill her. What I truly wished was to eat her living flesh. Nobody believes me, but my ultimate intention was to eat her, not necessarily kill her. But I came to the realization that in order to eat her, I had to kill her. The night that René rejected him, he stood behind her with the gun. But again, he was unable to go through with it. Night after night, he did the same thing before finally bucking up the courage. He stood directly behind her and aimed the rifle at the back of her head. He pulled the trigger and it misfired. Sagawa panicked and hit the gun before his victim could turn around. This little embarrassment only made him more determined, more hysterical, and I knew that I simply had to kill her. Several days later, he invited her over again, and, well, you know what happens next. So, when we last left Isai, he was stuffing the pieces of René into two suitcases. After that, he hailed a taxi out front of his apartment. He rode it to the Bois de Boulogne Park, just a few minutes down the road. The plan was to drop the bags in a small lake hidden from prying eyes, but that was easier said than done. A fully grown adult human is pretty damn heavy even if you do trim off some of the pieces. Sagawa struggled to drag the suitcases through the park, drawing the attention of dozens of passers-by. To make matters worse, the bottom of the suitcases were now sodden with blood dripping onto the path. The cannibal panicked, knowing it was only a matter of time before he was found out. He quickly dumped the bags behind a bush and ran home. That was a mistake. His plan was to enjoy as much of the frozen meat as possible before his inevitable capture. I'm sure one description of a Sagawa human buffet is more than enough for today. Instead, how about his justifications? For most of us, cannibalism is pretty unthinkable, but to him it felt completely natural. This quote from a 2009 Vice magazine interview sums it up. A contender 
for worst Tinder bio imaginable, by the way. It's simply a fetish. For example, if a normal man fancied a girl, he'd naturally feel a desire to see her as often as possible, to be close to her, to smell her, and kiss her, right? To me, eating is just an extension of that. Frankly, I can't fathom why everyone doesn't feel this urge to eat and to consume other people. Oh! Kind of writes, oh, so we're the weird ones. I see. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to say I get it, because obviously I don't. It's obviously an absolutely insane thing to do, but it is like his brain is broken. He realizes he has a mental disease, and he's like, yeah, I'm just ill. I don't know. It's just my brain's broken. It's kind of sad how he knows that. Clean slate. After all those years of craving human flesh, Sagawa finally realized his dream, but the reality was proving to be a little more troublesome than he ever imagined. Yes, because apparently Sagawa, as we've seen a few times already, has absolutely no foresight whatsoever, and he just hid a body in a suitcase behind a bush in a park. My dude, what are you up to? Cut back to him dumping those blood-soaked suitcases in the park, and you might imagine that justice was finally about to catch up with him. Well, yes and no. The police raided Sagawa's apartment two days after the bodies at the park were found. The anxiety must have spoiled the cannibal's appetite because the cops found many pieces of human flesh still in the freezer when they arrived. By way of how is justice not about to be majorly served? By way of an explanation, the Kobe cannibal simply said, I killed her to eat her flesh. But I, I mean, at least it's honest. He was arrested then and there. In his pretrial hearing, Sagawa spoke candidly about the sick details of his crime without emotion. For two years, the Kobe cannibal waited for his trial, but it never came. The judge, shaken by his sick indifference, eventually declared the defendant unfit to stand trial. Instead, he was committed to the Paul Gerard Asylum indefinitely. But that wasn't the end of the line for the killer. As I said before, only the poor have to face the consequences of their actions. Sagawa's father once again came to his rescue, negotiating a deal with the French to have his son transferred to asylum in Japan instead. So in 1984, he returned home. Keeping the man-eating francophile in captivity proved to be tougher than the Japanese authorities had hoped in order to keep him indefinitely. They required court documents from France in order to launch fresh charges on home soil. The problem was the French court procedure stated that the records had to be sealed whenever charges were dropped, so they refused to provide them. Wait, the charges weren't dropped, were they? Or like left behind, maybe? But he was convicted. Oh no, they were dropped because he was unfit to stand trial. He was committed, not convicted. Oh my, that is an unfortunate loophole legal system. This meant that the Japanese had no legal recourse in detaining Sagawa. Whether or not he stayed locked up was now a purely medical matter. Eventually, Sagawa Sr. was able to employ the help of a psychiatrist to get his son cured, and his cannibalistic offspring was allowed to check himself out of hospital after just 15 months. Five years after the killing, violating, eating, and dismembering of a woman, he was a free man. That is, yeah, okay, that is absolutely not justice served in any ways whatsoever. That's unfortunate didn't we say this guy like becomes famous or something and boasts about all of this that is just psycho i guess we're about to get to it because the next entry is titled superstar criminal You'd think that his reputation as a criminal and a cannibal would be enough to turn Sagawa into a bit of a social outcast, but what comes next is the most insane part of this story by far. 
We've got quite a lot of direct quotes from the cannibal to base our story on today. That's because he has always been happy to gleefully recount his experiences whenever a reporter comes knocking. Even while he was being flown from Paris to Tokyo, he was accompanied by a journalist. After rejoining society, the Japanese media indulged him time and time again, giving him a platform that can only be described as downright despicable. He wasn't just some cult figure either. Sagawa had paid appearances with some of the biggest publications and networks in the country. Following his 1986 release, Sagawa became a familiar face on daytime TV. Sometimes he appeared on talk shows on which he laid out his horrific crimes without shame or repentance. Other times he showed up on magazine shows where he was invited, like any other guest, to comment on the news of the day. He was even invited onto a daytime cooking show to give his opinion on meat dishes, and they were not making this up. This is insane. Why is this happening? Why isn't this guy shunned from society for forever? Like, what the f***? The BBC gets 500 complaints if someone says f*** on TV before 9pm. How the hell were everyday Japanese people fine seeing a self-confessed cannibal on their screens every other week? He wasn't outright condemned or challenged by the media. In fact, he usually just kind of showed up and hung out. The lone voice of the cannibal acceptance movement, he sometimes used his platforms to argue that eating people isn't really such a big deal. There are hundreds of grotesque quotes from the years, like, If people found out the truth, I'm sure that men would all start eating women. My dude, what is the truth? That you're the, No, you're the one with a broken brain. It wasn't just the broadcasting houses that indulged him either. Between TV gigs, Agawa made most of his money as a public speaker and writer. He landed a job as a sushi critic for Spa Magazine. Oh my god, can you imagine? What? A actual convicted murdering cannibal writing sushi reviews. That's, I don't want the sushi that guy wants. This is the same man who once said that the flesh of an actual human woman melted in my mouth like raw tuna. Somehow he also managed to find a publisher for 20 different books, including a tell-all memoir, a true crime book on the 1997 Kobe child murders, and a f***ing manga about Rene's murder. No! Dude, you cannot be actually serious. This is some insane sh- Imagine your daughter was cruelly taken from you and the killer was allowed to turn her death into a goddamn comic book. I am suing the sh** out of someone. That is crazy. His most recent work is a collection of erotic sketches and articles entitled Extremely Intimate Fantasies of Beautiful Girls. When it was released, he told the press, I hope the people who read it will at least stop thinking of me as a monster. Dude, no. 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 You're, you're a horrible person. You're a monster. Allegedly. That ship sailed long ago. Sagawa-san. What the f Japan? Oh, I almost forgot. If the cooking shows and comic books made you feel a bit sick, I've got one last treat for you. Back in the early 90s, some unscrupulous adult film producers thought it'd be a good idea to cast the Kobe Cannibal in their softcore exploitation films. What is going on, Japan? Oh my lord. Not only that, his main role was to bite into the skin of the actresses. Once again, we're not making this up. Japanese men actually paid money for VHS tapes of a self-confessed murder cannibal biting women. To make matters worse, one of the actresses reported that she was never informed in advance who her co-star was going to be. She only found out after filming the scene that the man she was cast alongside was genuinely fantasizing about eating her the entire time. I expected more of the pearl porn industry. Normally it's so ethical. (laughs) Just like that, the Kobe Cannibal, or the Paris Cannibal, as some in Japan refer to him, dodged prison and turned into a minor public figure. He made a decent living by repeatedly describing how he happily devoured a young woman. I can't even imagine what that kind of injustice did to Rene's family. How in the hell was a man like this given so much airtime throughout the 80s and 90s? Some have speculated that back when Japan's economy peaked, the TV stations had massive budgets and were in fierce competition for ratings. Slapping a cannibal on a cooking show was a surefire way to get some shock value. 
Meanwhile, the publishers and producers managed to sleep at night by reminding themselves that the guy never actually had a criminal record, so it wasn't really unethical to feature him. Dude, there's a difference between crimes and ethics. Do you not realize this, guys? Like, just because someone is not a criminal doesn't mean that what you're doing is uh, unethical. Come on. Come on. They just need it. They, they just want those ad, ad dollars, baby. Come on. Likewise, the viewers were happy to sweep the ethical questions under the rug since the object of their morbid fascination was only a gleeful, self-admitted cannibal, not a convicted one. Make of that what you will. I would make of that to be excuses. Since the late 90s, that attention has mostly dried up. The Kobe cannibal is living out his life relatively quietly in a small apartment in Kawasaki, just across the Tama River from Tokyo. He mostly survives off the inheritance gained from his father, whose funeral he was banned from attending. After suffering a cerebral hemorrhage in 2013, he now requires daily care from his brother, Jun. Sagawa still receives the odd few minutes in the limelight every few years or so, whenever Vice magazine or the like needs some shock value fodder. In one interview with them from around a decade ago, he told them that he feels that he has been punished for his crimes. Living life as a known murderer was payment enough. No, that's not how punishment works. <laughs> Considering you're not rotting in a French prison, I'd say you probably did all right. Wrap up. So that's how the Kobe Cannibal gained his name and rode his infamy to a life of TV appearances and book deals. Not once throughout any of that did he express any genuine remorse for what he did. Even worse, he claims that he wants to do it again. He can't imagine dying without being able to try human flesh just one last time. Back in 2009, he told Vice, Just today I saw a girl with a really nice derriere on my way to the train station. When I see things like that, I think about wanting to eat someone again before I die. I think either sukiyaki or shabu shabu is the best way to go in order to really savor the natural flavor of the meat. I spent about 12 months living in Kawasaki a little while back. Uh, that's Callum, not me, or um, the Kobe guy. Perhaps the Kobe cannibal has eyed my derriere at some point, too. I'll admit I'm no Grace Kelly, but I'm not bad either. But it looks like he might have missed his chance to take a bite. Now 72 years old, Sagawa has had gastronomic surgery and has to be fed through a tube installed directly in his stomach. I feel like they should have maybe done that like earlier on, just be like, let's head this off at the past and uh, feed you through a tube. I suppose I'd pop a few tidbits in if the price is right. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. Sagawa's fame wasn't just restricted to his homeland. He gets mentioned in Rolling Stone song from 1983 called Too Much Blood, and when he ate her, he took her bones to the Bois de Boulogne. He's also been the subject of multiple European and American documentaries, most notably 2017's Cannibal. Number 2. It seems like the whole Sagawa family might have been a little unhinged, as his younger brother Jun has his own strange predilection. In the documentary Cannibal, he reveals he enjoys self-harm with barbed wire and tools. So, what the hell happens in the Sagawa household? Number 3. Sagawa maintains his fascination for European culture to this day. In the 2000s, he almost landed a job at a French language school in Tokyo. The manager was impressed with his brass balls for using his real name, but was ultimately pressured to reject him by the other staff. <laughs> yeah, no s***. Amazingly, though, the Japanese authorities were less discerning. They issued Sagawa with a passport to travel to Germany. <laughs> Just at least take away his passport. Don't let him go anywhere. Keep an eye on him. Come on! This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I'm not going to ask whether you enjoyed it because it was f***ing horrible. Uh, if you do like this show and all of that stuff, please do leave it a review. If you're listening to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever, if you're watching on YouTube, why not head below, leave a comment, leave a like, make sure you're subscribed. And as always, thank you for watching. <laughs>